our one word study here on Sunday evenings. I know we've got uh, some visiting here with us tonight, so we're working our way through this devotional book, One Word, which has a different significant word every week uh, for our own personal study, and then we sort of cap that off on Sunday evening by talking about that word and its significance. Tonight we're looking at the word faith, starting this new unit that's focused on our faith. That's what they titled this unit, and it's fitting then that faith itself is the first word. Everybody here tonight is familiar with John chapter 3 and verse 16. That's the golden text of the Bible. It's the most famous verse in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came into the world, that text says, that through him the world might be saved. And how do we take advantage of that great gift that God has offered through his love? We just sang about the love of God. And that text says that God offers us a gift through his love. How do we receive that gift? By believing in Jesus, our text says. Believing in Jesus means salvation. Believing in Jesus means eternal life. We're saved by grace through faith. That's what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, another passage that most all of us probably know well. That noun there, that faith, is the Greek word pistis. That verb for believe back in John chapter 3, verse 16 is pistuo. In other words, those two things are cognates. They come from the same root. So often where we see faith translated as the noun, it's believe as the verb. But we're saying the same thing here. Scripture teaches clearly that we are saved by the grace of God on account of our faith or our belief in Jesus Christ. It teaches that unequivocally. But what does that mean? This is critically important because in my opinion, I think faith or belief is one of the most misunderstood, maybe the most misunderstood fundamental Christian doctrines. I think a lot of the misunderstandings that exist between different religious groups have at root a misconception about what faith or what belief is from the standpoint of Scripture. There are some professing Christians who have boiled down faith to nothing more than mentally believing a set of facts, in particular what we believe about Jesus. If I believe Jesus is the Son of God, well, then I have faith. That's saving faith. On the other hand, some in the secular world set faith in opposition to reason. You know, you Christians are irrational with your faith, and they almost seem to think that uh, the more irrational something is, the more faith you have, and that's a, a good thing, that you Christians are completely unreasonable. We don't have time to get into dispelling all that tonight, but true biblical faith is rooted in reason, in logic, in facts. It's not in opposition to that. So we need to understand what faith is, and more specifically, what is biblical saving faith? And the best place to understand that, I think, in terms of 
one sermon, if we don't want to go into a whole series of lessons on this, for one lesson, the best place to understand that is where we read just a few moments ago, Romans chapter 4, where Paul discusses the faith of Abraham. Paul appeals to Abraham's faith here, and he does this because this is the example, the prototype for how someone comes into a relationship with God, how someone's declared to be just or right by God. Romans chapter 4, verse 3. This is Paul quoting from Genesis 15, verse 6. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, I'm not going to read through all of Romans chapter 4, but I'd encourage you to, to work your way through this sometime and see the argument that Paul's making. And the whole context here has to do with those who would impose requirements of the law of Moses, especially circumcision on Christians. That is, that you need to keep the law in order to be in that right relationship with God now. But Paul's point is, no, the basis of that right relationship with God is faith. And he even appeals to the example of Abraham with that. So just working through the verses here, it's not because of works, it's God's free gift. That's verses 4 through 8. And he points out that in Abraham's case, this is before he ever received that covenant of circumcision. That is, his faith was counted to him as righteousness before God ever told him anything about that. That's verses 9 through 12. And so his point is, this demonstrates the basis on which God accepts people. That's verses 13 through 16. He appeals to this example of Abraham, and Abraham is a case study in the fact that God accepts people on the basis of faith. Now, I expect that most all of us here this evening are familiar with the story of Abraham and his great faith. We'll read a little bit of it, and we'll talk more about it, starting in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham was born in the city of Ur in Mesopotamia. Now, this was the most advanced civilization in its day when Abraham was born around the turn of the second millennium B.C. And in Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1, we find his call by God and the response that he makes to it. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. This was a tremendous challenge. I want you to think about this. Abraham is told to leave his homeland behind, leave his family, leave everything that he's ever known. And not just everything he's known personally, but leave the most advanced civilization of his day to go out to the backwoods, <laughs> go out to the frontier. He's going out to a place, well, he doesn't really know. <laughs> just wherever it is that God leads him, but he's leaving all of this behind, completely uprooting to head out into 
the mystery. And to make a long story short, as it says there, Abraham went. He followed God without hesitation, and he moves around a good bit. He goes to Haran until his father dies, and then he moves on further, and then he spends some time in Canaan, and he goes down into the Negev, he goes down into Egypt, so on and so forth. And in the midst of that, God makes a new promise to him that he's going to have a son. And then over the course of time, some years pass, and eventually, when he's 100 years old, that son of promise, Isaac, is born to him. The most significant event in Abraham's life occurs just a few years later. And we read about this in Genesis chapter 22. God decided to prove or to test Abraham by saying, Genesis 22 verse 2, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. As difficult as that command was, as incomprehensible as it was, because after all, here's, here's the son that God has, has promised him. This doesn't make any sense. And of course, as the text says explicitly, Abraham loved Isaac. Can't imagine just how hard this was. Yet Abraham, again, complied without hesitation. He went to Mount Moriah he bound Isaac. He placed him on an altar. He took the knife in his hand, and then it was just at that very last moment that God stayed his hand. In verse 12, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham passed the test that God provided him as we talked about this morning. More space is devoted to the story of Abraham than any other figure in the book of Genesis. And of course, this book is all about beginnings. When we couple that emphasis with the fact that we read about Abraham over and over and over again throughout the rest of the Bible, that should tell us right away, he's important. We need to notice him. Why? Why is so much space devoted to Abraham? Because, as Paul points out, his life demonstrates in the most vivid and forceful way what it means to be in a relationship with God, and especially what the basis is of that right relationship with God. Abraham demonstrated absolute, unwavering faith in God. He grew up in a polytheistic society. We know from archaeology that in ancient Ur there was a great ziggurat, one of those stepped temples to the moon god. It was uh, one of the most pronounced buildings in the ancient world. So that's the environment he grew up in. And yet he rejected those polytheistic gods, those pagan gods, and he turned to the one true God. He complied with his command immediately, and we don't have any evidence that he ever looked back to those false gods of his youth. And not only that, he didn't fail to be faithful, even to the point of being willing to offer up his son, his only son, whom he loved, because the Lord commanded it. 
So Abraham's example is unique. It's tremendous for those of us who would try to follow in his steps and demonstrate that same faith in God. And now we go back to Romans chapter 4 where we begin because the nature of his faith is particularly evident in this discussion here. And I'm going to read to you what Tristan read a few moments ago, Romans 4. I'm going to begin in verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I've always found it most helpful in this text for us to understand the point Paul's making as it applies to us to work our way backwards through what we've just read here. So notice verse 25. This is what Christ did for us. He was handed over to death. He was raised up by God. The benefit of that, why it matters, is in verses 23 and 24. We are counted as righteous. How? What's the basis of that? Verse 22, his faith. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. What is the nature of that faith? Remember, that's the key question. That's what we're trying to answer here. What is faith? What's the nature of faith? Well, verses 19 through 21 are key, especially verse 21. Sometimes, I know I've said this before, but a lot of times people will ask, what is faith? And if we give a one-sentence biblical definition, we'll go to Hebrews 11, 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's a little mysterious. Romans chapter 4, verse 21 is the best one-verse definition of faith that there is in all of the Bible. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's what faith is. It's trust in the promises of God. Abraham was fully convinced God could do and would do what he'd promised. And of course, the promise has already been stated back in verse number 18, that he'd be the father of many nations. And you go back to verse 17 where we begin, we have the nature of the God who made that promise, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. You see, the point of all this is that Abraham believed in the same God with the very same nature that we believe in. This is our God, a God who gives life to the dead, a God who raised Jesus Christ, our Lord, up from the dead. 
faith in that kind of God, I mean, look at what he can do. That means that we have to be fully convinced that he can do whatever he's promised that he'll do. Abraham's example, then, if we take it in its totality, shows us that there are three elements to biblical saving faith. And I know that we've talked about this before at some point on down the line uh, since I've been here. But we can't emphasize this enough because there is so much misunderstanding about faith. These three elements involve the intellect, they involve the emotions, and they involve the will. So there is mental assent, that is that intellectual acceptance of facts, that's what involves the mind. There is trust, and then there is obedience or faithfulness, that's what involves the will. All three of those elements are present in the story of Abraham. His faith comprehends all three of those aspects. Without those three things, biblical saving faith does not exist. Faith includes all three of those elements. Abraham assented to the call of God. He trusted in those promises that God made him, and then he obeyed by departing his country. And those same three elements are essential for our own faith. Let's talk briefly about those three in just a little more detail. So faith, first of all, involves that mental assent. That is, it involves the acceptance of a truth. Everyone, as far as I know, in the wider religious world, acknowledges that, at least. That is, that we have to accept that certain things are true. It's not enough to just know the truth. You have to actually believe that it's the truth. Knowledge of who Christ is and what he's done, those things are necessary, but those alone aren't sufficient. Uh, We mentioned this in passing this morning. Even the demons believe and they shudder, as James says in James chapter 2. So they know, they have knowledge of what the truth is, but they don't accept it. They don't believe it in the sense that they adhere to it in any way. So faith means that we mentally accept, we agree to that truth, but not just any truth. This is God's truth. After all, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ, as Paul says in another place in Romans. So this is God who's speaking to us, who creates this faith. Interestingly, that connects to our lesson last week when we talked about proclamation, sort of brings these things together. God, in that sense, creates faith because he's the one who issues this proclamation. But the point is, God's word is the basis of our faith. We can either accept it or we can reject it. It's our choice. But that means when we go to passages, another one that we probably all know about faith, Hebrews eleven six. without faith it's impossible to please him. That means that that's not just arbitrary. God didn't just place that as a, a condition on how we approach him. The only way to know God's will is to believe what he says. That's the only way we have a relationship with anyone. So faith isn't just this arbitrary exercise. This is the basis of all of our relationships. We have to believe that person. That's what we're talking about, first of all, when we talk about faith. But agreeing with the facts, just that intellectual assent, that isn't enough. Think about John chapter 3 again. 
John chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you remember the context of John chapter 3? It's a conversation that Jesus is having with the Pharisee, Nicodemus, who comes to him secretly by night. Now, if you remember the way that conversation begins back in verse number 2 of that chapter, Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God because no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, Nicodemus obviously mentally assented to the truth of who Christ was. We know you've come from God. Nobody can do what you do unless God was with him. But Nicodemus doesn't have saving faith at that point. He's hiding it. He's afraid of openly proclaiming the fact that he believes in Jesus. And that's why Jesus tells him these other things that need to be done. He doesn't believe in him or into him, literally, in that deeper sense of John 3.16. See, we believe a lot of things in terms of intellectual acceptance. You know, 2 plus 2 equals 4 things like that. If we're talking about biblical saving faith, there's another level there. Of those things we mentally accept, there's a limited number of things that we place our trust in. And that's the second thing we need to notice here. Biblical saving faith involves not only intellectual assent, it involves trust, commitment, surrender. It's taking someone at their word. That's what Paul's describing there in Romans chapter 4, verse 21, isn't it? When he says that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he'd promised. That's trust, and that's at the heart of faith. In that light, what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 is a lot more meaningful. By grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Salvation is a gift, Paul says. The only way to receive any gift is in faith. That is, in trusting, grateful acceptance. We rely on that person who's giving us that gift, that they're giving us something that's good, beneficial to us. In other words, just like believing God isn't an arbitrary condition, trusting God isn't arbitrary. It's the only way to accept something that someone offers. I've always liked the way that the 20th century theologian Karl Barth defined faith at one point. He described it this way. Faith is holding, in spite of all that contradicts it, once for all, exclusively and entirely to God's promise and guidance. Faith is holding, in spite of all that contradicts it, once for all, exclusively and entirely to God's promise and guidance. We see that demonstrated in Abraham, don't we? If you flip over to Hebrews chapter 11, that great hall of fame of the heroes of faith, the Hebrews writer focuses on those very same incidents that we briefly outlined in terms of Abraham's career. Chapter 11, verse number 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose 
designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. You skip down to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So you see those same episodes accomplished by faith, that call to leave his homeland, that believing in the promise of a son, and that willingness then to even go and to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Trusting God is a complete commitment, exclusively and entirely. That's what Abraham did when he answered God's call to forsake his homeland, to forsake his friends, to forsake his family, to leave behind everything that he'd ever known. He wasn't swayed by any of those other loyalties. He was loyal to God alone. And he did that, again to go back to Bart's definition, in spite of everything that contradicted it. And man, did he have a lot that contradicted it. When God called him, he was already an old man. He was 75 years old. No offense to those who have already passed that age here. But he was old to be going and making that sort of journey out into the unknown. And then it was later when God promised him he'd have a son and then he was a hundred years old when that son was finally born and his wife was well past the age of conception too. But instead of incredulity, Abraham trusted God's promise. He took him at his word. And he did that, again to go back to that definition, once and for all. That is, when he started down this road, there was no turning back. He followed God to the end. He completely surrendered, as Genesis 22 illustrates, when God told him to go and to offer his son, his only son, whom he loved. It didn't make any sense, but he'd trusted God this far, and he would continue to trust him all the way. But even this, even this, this trust, this isn't enough to completely define biblical saving faith because people can place their trust in a lot of different things in other false religions, in secular philosophy, in political ideologies. We can go on and on in the things, the ideas that people place their ultimate trust in. To distinguish that sort of faith from biblical saving faith, there's one more element that's needed, and that's obedience. Faith involves obedience. Or to put it another way, many of those places where the word is translated as faith, it can also be translated as faithfulness. That Greek word pistis comprehends both. It can be translated both ways, and it entirely depends on the context as to how we take it. But Hebrews chapter 11 demonstrates that, doesn't it? If you read through all of this, and it's not just Abraham, what's the point that he makes over and over? By faith, people acted. By faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham got up and left. By faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. On and on and on. Faith isn't something that's just intellectual. Faith requires faithfulness. It calls them to do something. Faith and obedience are frequently linked in Scripture. 
If we go back to Romans, you'll see Paul talks about the obedience of faith at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. That is faithful obedience, the response that faith requires. So even though we try to distinguish these two things, and there are some out in the wider religious world that will try to say that 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 faithfulness is separate from our faith, from our belief. From the standpoint of Scripture, these two things are linked. There is no such thing in the Bible as a disobedient faith. Just listen, to go back one more time to John chapter 3, to the parallelism down in verse number 36. This is all part of this wider context. But down in verse number 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You notice that parallelism there? Whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever does not, not believe. No, whoever does not obey shall not see life. The opposite of belief isn't it expressed as unbelief. It's expressed as disobedience. Faith and obedience are linked. They're inseparable. Some of God's promises are unconditional, but some of them are conditional. And if God attaches a condition to a promise, trust in God, faith in him, means that we'll follow through and we'll be obedient to the conditions that he's placed on that. And to go back to Hebrews chapter 11 one final time, We have an excellent example here, an illustration of how faith and obedience and a conditional promise are all tied together. In verse number 30, it says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. That's a story we all know. The walls fell because God told the Israelites to march around repeatedly. And then on the seventh day, they marched around multiple times. They blew horns, they shouted, and the walls fell. Because God promised that he would give them the city. So why did the walls fall? It wasn't by human effort. That's obviously not any sort of great tactical plan. They fell because God promised they'd fall. He gave the city to the Israelites as a gift. But what if Joshua had viewed God's promise, his gracious gift here, What if he'd viewed it the same way a lot of people view faith today? Well, God said he's going to do it, and I believe God can do it, so I don't have to do anything. And if they just sat down there in the desert and waited for the walls to fall, well, their bones would have bleached there. We'd find a lot of remains of a dead Israelite army waiting for those walls to fall out there in the wilderness. Faith was the reason that they fell. That's what the writer says. Joshua trusted God. He believed that he would do what he'd promised. But because of that belief, he acted in response. He was obedient to that command. So to go back to where we begin, John chapter 3 and verse 16, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to have faith? I have to mentally assent to what it says there, yes, that he came to this earth, that he's the one and only son of God, that he died for our sins. But I also have to put my trust exclusively and entirely in him. And I have to be obedient to him. I have to be faithful to those things he's commanded. That's the faith that Abraham 
exhibited. That's the faith that the scripture says, and Paul reminds us, was reckoned to him as righteousness. We are saved by faith. That is by trust. But we need to be careful. That's not faith in our own good works. Sometimes we'll unwittingly place our faith there. I've been good enough, I think, or I worry I'm not good enough to go to heaven. That makes it all about us, whether we realize it or not. Sometimes it will be faith in faith itself. I think that's what a lot of people uh, in the wider Christian world view as faith. That is, my faith itself, my belief is strong enough, but that's not where our trust is placed. Our faith isn't in our baptism. That is, I know that I'm saved because I was baptized right. We can do that. Our faith isn't even in the Bible, as important as it is. Our faith, our trust, is fundamentally in a person. It's in Jesus Christ. That's the basis of our salvation. That's how we know we're right with God. And the question tonight, I suppose, is really the same one that we asked this morning, in a sense. Are you in the faith? For those who are here tonight, an audience that I look across, already Christians, have we been faithful to him? If not, then we need to make changes. And if you need to do that in a public way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.